Assalamu alaikum Good morning. It's a nice and cold day in London, Saturday, the 27th of January. And you're joined in the studio um, by myself, Marik Takri Mohammed, presenting. And we have a special guest in studio today. We have Tahir Farooq. Uh, if you could introduce yourself, Tahir. Yeah, Assalamu alaikum. Um, I am a third year law student at UCR. Um, and yeah, I've been invited today by Takrim uh, Saab. He's invited me down here politely, so we're just going to go through the program for today. So, just a little uh, disclaimer: this is our, this is my first uh, time presenting the main show. You might remember Umar Bhatti, Hamad Khan, and you know our usual presenters. Um, and don't worry, they'll be back from next week. But we are here, so forgive us for any uh, shortcomings. But we're ready to uh, ready to just have a chat for the next uh, couple hours. Uh, go through some stories, talk to some special guests that are joining us later on, which I'll introduce to you in about half an hour. Um, but yeah, just feel free to, of course, call in. The number is 020-8687-7878. And the website where you can listen along live is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And also make sure to tweet us or X us. I'm not sure that's the right word. But um, it's at Voice of Islam UK. So we'll begin, Tahir, with uh, a few news stories that we both have. Um, what what news stories have you been looking at over the weekend? Yeah, so I saw an article in The Economist um, which was titled, What Could Apple Bring, or What Could Bring Apple Down? Um, and I thought it was quite an interesting piece. It spoke a lot about how, uh, I'm sure we've all seen, um, or many of us have seen, that Microsoft temporarily overtook Apple as the most valuable company mm. um, this week. Uh, I think it was for a period of about a day or two days. Mm. Um, but in that time, well, in the past few years, Apple has kind of monopolized that spot, has been their spot. Mm. Um, quick, quick check. How many Apple devices do you own right now? Just, okay, one, two, Airphones, uh, AirPods as well. That's three, automatically three, I can think of it on my person right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's crazy because my laptop's not, not Apple. I hate Mac OS, but I've got yeah. my iPhone, AirPods, iPad, even had a, I think, a Apple Air, a headphones at one point as well, yeah. Apple Max. But yeah, quickly, even between two of us, we have what six devices that we own. Yeah, exactly. That's crazy. And I think this is the this is a big um, this is a big part of of what this article then later talks about. It's just how Apple managed to monopolize um, and managed to almost make it so that we have to buy every Apple pod- product mm, mm. to really engage with their, their iOS and, and their software services. So my friends say to me all the time because I had to see him, he's just transfer airdropping from his phone to his, his laptop. I mean, I'm like, look, I hate macOS, I hate Pages or whatever it's called, you know. Yeah. I hate that the software, right? But that system, that functionality is so cool being able to transfer directly from your phone to your laptop. But again, the point is that if you can do that with Apple, why can't we do that with Samsung or whatever? And again, the issue is they want to keep you in that ecosystem, right? They Definitely. keep you locked in. Definitely. And I think Apple, so this article really goes into that. It talks about how um, there are three broad categories as to what can bring Apple down from mm. that pedestal that they that they have and what actually has done to mm. allow Microsoft to, so to tell, gain that tell position. us about it a little bit more, a couple of minutes. Yeah, so... Um, there's three broad categories that they really went into detail with, and that's antitrust and legal issues. So that's to do with competition law mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and just m- ensuring that there's competition and regula- uh, regulating competition in the mm-hmm. marketplace. Um, iPhone sales slowing mm-hmm. and growing geopolitical tension. Uh, that's between the US and China. And how does that affect Apple? So How does a company get affected by governments? You know? So um, this is a <laughs> very, in the legal space, is a very uh, contentious <laughs> okay, kind of yeah. topic. I mean... Um, whether a public institution can go into the the private company's dealings is mm. is a whole um, a whole 
bag of tricks in itself. But um, in this context, uh, should Joe Biden or Donald Trump be re-elected? Um, or well, I guess you could say Trump re-election from his previous term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, should either of them come into power now? Uh, either way, China already are skeptical of US tech firms monopolizing their market also mm. or having such a strong market hold in their mm. in their um, jurisdiction mm. um huawei we've seen the rise of huawei we've mm. seen how the west has reacted to huawei mm. um and they'll want to continue to grow their homegrown tech businesses um and so i think there's a lot of tension now as to barriers to trade mm. uh which could it, could it could be very detrimental to apple's um mm position in the market that makes sense i think because the tensions in taiwan that we uh that you know came happened a few months ago that was over Taiwan is a big manufacturer of chips if i remember correctly yeah exactly um and so and so forth you know and so that's something like 80 percent of the world's production or something crazy like that yeah so of course you know if there's instability in that country you could see you know a stop of production of phones and so on and so forth you can see how private companies would be deeply interested in the in the government dealings um and it kind of makes sense why they'd be interested. But at the same time, the public sector, private sector, you know, how do you balance that? Exactly. Um, in, in the NGO world, in um, the world of international development uh, and global health, there's something called public-private partnerships, PPPs. And I'm not sure if you have them, I'm not sure if you've come across them before, but these are very kind of problematic, some people say, in terms of if a public, if a private company is providing public sector services, how are they being paid? Of course, the private sector wants to make money, public sector wants to, you know, serve the people, um, you know, in essence. And so how do you balance the interests of both? Is there a conflict of interest and so on and so forth? So I think it's really interesting, that whole argument between the public space and the private sector space. Um, but Zakla, thank you for that. I think it's quite interesting, actually. And you did well to keep away from the legalese, as my brother yeah. refers to it. Yeah, um, you have to, you have to manage to try and break things down into yeah. a more, into a less codified for the lesser mortals. For the lesser mortals, yeah. um, we'll probably do. Let's do a couple more um, news articles. So I've got one. Um, as you know, I have to bring the NHS into pretty much every uh, show that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but senior doctors in England reject government's pay offer. The BMA union calls the ministers for more talks after the narrow vote against proposal. Um, so essentially junior doctor strikes have been happening for a while but they were supplemented by senior doctor strikes by senior doctors we mean um i i always want to clarify this because people think junior doctors are doctors in training so the word junior doctor actually refers to not only f1 and f2s that are just out of uh, medical school but it refers to any doctor that's not a consultant or is in training okay. especially training right and the fact of the matter is if you go to hospital all the doctors you see apart from like maybe one person will be a junior doctor technically because a, a specialist or a registrar, as we call them, they could be five, six years down their training pathway after F1, F2 in medical school, and they'll still technically be a junior doctor. So that's an interesting point I think people forget. In their minds, a junior doctor is like a 25-year-old just out of uni. Yeah. Where actually a junior doctor can be a 38-year-old, for example, or a 32-year-old, 33-year-old, who's had eight, nine years of experience, but they're still a couple of years away from, from taking their consultant exams. Mm. Or even people who've done their consultant exams, as we see in cardiology, actually, or but there's simply not enough consultant posts in the UK so they're, at, they're qualified to consultant. They've done, they passed their exams. They have the experience, but they simply haven't taken the role yet because the role is not available in hospitals. But without getting into the, uh, the medicalese of it, let's call yeah. it. Um, <laughs> essentially, they, they had a pay offer from the government um, and 51% of its consultant members voted against the proposed deal. Um, so quite a narrow one, actually. Um, but essentially, uh, the consultants were calling for an above inflation pay rise. Um, again, the the efforts of both the junior doctors and senior doctors are focused on uh, addressing pay erosion. So the thing that the thing is that this is not a pay rise in this essence. This is just com- combating uh, pay erosion. 
and so where they're leveling the wages as it is. Um, combination of inflation over the years, combination of the deal the doctor signed back in 2016, I believe it was, which kept their wages growing at a steady pace, but obviously not keeping up with inflation, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and Victoria Atkins is the new health secretary, um, and she said that uh, she was disappointed that the BMA has uh, rejected this fair and reasonable offer, yeah. uh, as she should. What do you think about, um, as someone not in the medical field, for example, as a layman, how... What do you think about the strikes? You know, do you think do you think the doctor should be paid more? And if they should be paid more, are strikes the way to, to go about it? Yeah, I think uh, as somebody, uh, as a UCL student, mm. um, I saw kind of the, the front line of the strikes. Okay. Um, how, how so? How so? So I, I used to live right by um, UCLH uh-huh. Hospital. Yeah, right? near, nearby, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as I used to walk to uni last year, I'd see the, the nurses pay strikes and as well, the doctors as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I think definitely um, when it comes to the NHS, when it comes to people with such a big responsibility in the public sector, mm-hmm. of course, you should be paid a lot more just simply for the responsibility that you do have to hold as a public servant, right? Mm. Um, however, it's just, I guess it is just the balance of how do we do this in a fiscally responsible way? Mm. Um with inflation rising, uh, obviously with inflation rising, you would expect wages to grow also. Mm. Um, but it's just about doing this in a way that is financially sustainable for the government as well. Mm. Um, we already know that the NHS is very strapped for cash, very strapped mm. for uh, funding. Mm. So yeah, it's just it's just how do we do this? I think without going into the depths of it, which has covered many, many times in this room, I'm sure over the last five, maybe even... Yeah, four or five years. Um, the NHS, you know, as an institute, is an amazing institute, in my opinion. Um, what Bevan set out to do, um, he did very well for a long time. But due to pay cuts, due to underfunding, due to the redistribution of wealth, due to the way... Um, one of my professors put it very nicely. He said that when you start running out of cash, you start doing kind of hints and tricks and you try cutting corners and, yeah. and so on and so forth. And that is now a culmination of that humble jumble nest that is the NHS right now. Definitely. Um, in my opinion, that, um, you know, that we're kind of seeing the the, the efforts, the kind of the, the conclusion of that really, which is sad to see. Um, one thing that always kind of annoys me or irks me is that um, people always say about our junior we're training loads of new junior doctors and medical students. And I think this year they've introduced lots of new different types of medical programs, degree apprenticeships and so on and so forth. But um, the issue is that at the under the the other end of the scale, the positions of consultants and the number of places available for consultant positions is not increasing at the same rate yeah. or increasing at all really. So you're having now massive backflow coming through of large numbers of medical students and junior doctors, but actually only the highly highly specialised ones are going into the top positions. Yeah, and everyone else is just being used as service provision as mm-hmm. they call in the NHS, um, which is a shame, which is not their job. Um, but again, without getting into that, just to let viewers know that the strikes are look like they're set to be continued, yeah. um, unless they revote or a new pay offer comes through. So um, unfortunately, we might we might see some more uh, disturbances or yeah. the disruption. But I believe we have a caller on the line. Um, we have with us Malik Faraz Ahmed, who is I wouldn't say a regular caller, semi-regular caller, calls in every now and then. We have to call in a favour, but um, <laughs> he is he's he's on the line with us today. Um, so yeah. Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Faraz, how are you doing? Hi, Islam, I'm doing well. Peace be upon you too. Um, I'm doing well, I'm doing well. So Faraz, um, you, I believe you have some uh, news stories for us. But firstly, tell us, how was your, how was your week and how was, your, how was yesterday? I know already, but do you want to share with the viewers? 
Yeah, it was really nice. I, I've actually, um, I, I came down from university. I was, I was watching a football game in London. So I'm doing this interview down in London for, from one. So uh, the resident northerner is, is down south for this one. Mm. And um, at the risk of uh, dividing the population of our, of our viewers, um, would you like to say, tell them which team you support and which team you're watching? I'm, I'm a Chelsea fan. So uh, it was a bit of a disappointing result yesterday. Uh, what yeah, was the result, actually? <laughs> It was, it was a nil-nil draw, bit of a stalemate. Against which team? Aston Villa. Yeah, I think that explains it all, really. Rubbing salt in the wounds. Uh, it has, has to be done. As a resident Liverpool fan, I can't, I can't, I can't be happy too much after Klopp's announcement yesterday. Yeah, we'll get onto that later. We'll get onto that later, <laughs> definitely in the last uh, half an hour of the show. But I believe you have a uh, news article for us. Um, I do. So I, I have two actually. The first one revolves around um, the post office scandal, which I'm sure um, a lot of people will have been following. And essentially, it's, um, I, I, I read this article in BBC News. And essentially, it was, you know, to give a bit of brief, brief background around the post office scandal, it was, I'm sure most people will have seen, it was about more than 900 sub-postmasters and postmistresses were prosecuted uh, between 1999 and 2015, um, were prosecuted by the, the post office because of incorrect information provided by the computer accounting system called Horizon. And Horizon was made by Fujitsu, which was uh, which it was contracted out to by the government. So a lot of a lot of questions has be, have been raised uh, regarding um, whether you know the the right due diligence was was done um, in order to in order to hire Fujitsu in the first place. And a public inquiry began in February 2021. And after on the review of that, the Criminal Cases Review Commission said that the scandal was, and I quote, the most widespread miscarriage of justice the CCRC has ever seen and represents the biggest single series of wrongful convictions in British legal history. And I think uh, recently as well in an ITV drama and in a BBC Panorama investigation, that's really brought to light um, the plight of these people. And I think there's been a large swing in public opinion towards, um, of, of, of empathy towards, towards these uh, postmasters and mistresses. Um, I think the effect now is on, on post office staff is that, and especially I think the, the, the effect on, on the government, the government has made available the post office minister, Kevin Hollingrake, has said that the government has budgeted one billion pounds for compensation. So this is in three three major major areas. I think the first thing is there was a group litigation order a few years ago for 555 postmasters, which won their lawsuit. But because of the like extraordinary legal costs, they were only got a very, relatively small payout after those costs had been have been taken into account. Now the overturned conviction scheme offers the, these guys who are eligible. And I think more than 4,000 people have been told they are eligible. Uh, a fast-track £600,000 settlement or the chance to negotiate a higher payment as well. And I think for the uh, some individual compensation claims have been told to go well over a million pounds. So I think in terms of that, the compensation aspect is being dealt with. I think what is more pertinent is who is from the government side and who from uh, from the elected, you know, elected public officers are going to be held responsible for the Horizon scandal because the post office is owned by the government. However, the actual day-to-day -day operations of the business are run by the Post Office Limited Company Board, which is, of course, not, you know, not, not, not elected, not to do with the government. And the Post Office Chief Executive Paula Venel resigned in 2019 after the scandal. And in January of this year, she said she's going to hand back her CBE after there was a petition, you know, of more than a million signatures, which called for her, her revocation of that. And in August 2023, the current chief executive said that he was going to return all the bonus money that he received for his work on the Horizon Inquiry. And he's apologized as well. But I think most prominently, the most prominent person I think who has got entangled in all of this 
is actually the current Lib Dem leader, Sir Ed Davey. And he is also among several politicians facing questions because he was the Postal Affairs Minister during the coalition government in May 2010. And strikingly, he did he refused to meet Alan Bates, who is the subject of the ITV documentary, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. And he refused to meet with him in 2010 because he said he did not believe it would serve any purpose. And now he has gone on. He has gone on to apologize and he has gone on to say that he was deeply misled by the post office executives in their advice. But I think it raises the question that Sir Ed Davey is often characterized as a person who who is a, a moral upstander. He is a person who always calls for the resignation of, of other government officials when they have done wrong. So uh, people are calling for his resignation now on the same basis. Mm. And that's very interesting. I mean, literally a few minutes ago, we were talking about public uh, sector, private mm. sector partnerships. And again, perhaps, you know, the striking example of where it's gone wrong. For, but for me, I don't know about you, Tahir, but for me, the, the most striking part of this is the fact that there's two things really that, first of all, post office perhaps knew. I mean, can't say for certain, they're going to deny it, of course. But I, I think I would think perhaps the investigation revealed that they did know that, you know, the, the software might not be fully accurate. And second of all, it took the release of the Bates versus the post office, the the, the documentary, in order for people's sentence to be raised to this and for people to go back to it, really. And that kind of was very interesting for me in terms of how the entertainment sector and how, you know, the views of, of, of the normal people, the lay people, for example, can actually have an effect on um, you know such big inquiries and so on and so forth. And how is this, an, is this an example of how public opinion really does matter when it comes to government affairs now, we've always seen protests and so on and so forth. Uh, we saw the, you know, uh, Swale Braverman, you know, being sacked a, a few weeks ago, um, partially due to the, the protests <coughs> that were happening, perhaps, for example. Um, but is this an example, perhaps, Dahir, what do you think, of a public opinion affecting uh, government matters? Yeah, definitely. Um, public opinion will always play a big role in government matters at the end of the day. Um, they are here to serve us. Mm. Um, and so I, I think that would be kind of it, it would always matter uh, uh, what we think however again I think like you you said going back to the public private um, sort of divide and distinction uh, as much as our opinions matter as, as a as a public uh, our, our public opinion matters as much as the public um, body must um, have public duties and public responsibilities at the end of the day this was a privately come a privately run um, sort of company. Mm. Uh, but backed by taxpayers' sense. money, right? Backed by taxpayers' money, 100%. Okay. Um, but it, when you're running something in a private manner, uh, it almost becomes profit-making ex- exercise, mm. right? Mm. As opposed to um, feeling that sort of public uh, duty or mm. duty to uphold anything to the public, that public responsibility, it almost gets diminished when you turn something into a profit-making exercise. So maybe the fault here lies in, in making that, Pub, uh, privately run board uh, not necessarily feel or have any particular duty uh, to the wider public mm-hmm. um, yeah maybe there should have been some more accountability uh, greater accountability measure mm. greater I guess I guess you could say a sort of briefing to mm. these board directors and members of this PLC and say look at the end of the day this is a publicly run company Mm-hmm. We have these um, aims and our, uh, aim, aims and objectives. We must execute on them. That's interesting. I guess that raises the question then of whether other nationalised institutions, um, perhaps I'm using the word nationalising correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, as a layman who's not involved, who doesn't know much about politics and law, for example, I see institutions as the railway, the National Rail, for example, or we see 
I guess even TFL to a certain extent. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's fully private or not. Um, also, um, you know, some of the uh, Yorkshire Water, for example, and some of the water utilities. How, I guess my question to Faraz, I guess, is that if this is an issue primarily with the the fundamental formation of these public-private partnerships or, you know, we can say having private companies being run, so or institutions being run privately but backed by taxpayers' money, is there a fundamental problem with that then? And could this lead to more scandals like this in the future? Yeah, I think I mean, this is the, the classic dichotomy of uh, nationalisation versus privatisation. I think there, there are pros and cons to both sides. I think um, on, on the pro side for nationalisation, you know, the, the, the primary the primary arg- argument is one of public interest and accountability. That if nationalised in- industries are accountable to the public rather than shareholders, then they will ensure that their operations, of course, align more closely with that of the public interest, in theory anyway. And also, of course, it gives the government a chance to, you know, engage in long-term planning. Often with private companies, you have short-termism and uh, maximizing profits over the actual customer customer experience. And of course, it, it grants a bit of stability as well. For example, the train network, if that is not being shifted, often train contracts are shifted between train companies, um, which causes a bit of uncertainty. But of course, if they're nationalized, it's just going to be the government. And of course, in sectors which are sort of crucial for crucial for national security not just um, you know military but economically as well nationalization does ensure that the government has the control and oversight in those but of course we have to bear in mind that i think a major concern is and this is the classic sort of you know economists would say that efficiency that private companies are often considered you know more efficient because of the competition because of their profit motivation which of course inherently has the risk that i've aforementioned but i think that is something to bear in mind also i think with a nationalized uh, industries, there can, of course, inherently be political interference, um, mm. because which means that sometimes decisions are made, which are, of course, political, uh, and are made, you know, before a big election, there may be a big project announced, which might actually not be the most economically viable time to do that. And I think finally, I think it's um, that, of course, with nationalization as well, you have, um, you have a monopoly, of course, and, and in industries where there are natural monopolies, such as the water, water um, industry that can also lead a risk and actually be detrimental to consumers overall so i think it's important to sort of bear, bear these in mind and i think of course it's sort of it, it depends on where you lie on the um, on the political spectrum i think which will determine where you fall on which side of this argument yeah no so certainly i agree with that um, and, and thank you for that i think we have one more news story so we can, we can briefly cover that in the next uh, five minutes or so yeah, um, the next story that I saw was actually in the Financial Times, and this is to do with uh, primarily talking about the UK's struggles with, with infrastructure and infrastructure planning. And it used the case study of the Lower Thames Crossing. So just to give a bit of background, it started off by saying the 359,000 pages of planning applications and over £800 million spent already upon this project would suggest that construction is well underway. But in actual reality, even the final approval has not been sought yet. The estimated cost of the project has soared to nearly nine billion pounds, and it is the plan. Basically, is the London Thames crossing is the first plan to build. Um, it is the plan the plan to build the first East London crossing of the Thames in over 60 years. So it's going to be built uh, just uh, off the M25 uh, junction 29 and towards east, towards um, uh, over sort of you know Stamford, Le Hope, Tills, Tilbury, Gravesend, so towards the east east side of London. And I think one of the big reasons it says that, you know, up until now it hasn't happened and why the, the UK has an issue with infrastructure projects is because of the convoluted contracting and outsourcing, just the nature of, of British construction. And the biggest thing is with modern UK infrastructure projects, 
the article claims that there are, be- are be- there are a bewildering number of contractors. And with, with these multiple layers of contractors, you know, protected by complicated legal agreements, what that means is that none of the actual companies that which are given the contract directly employ the bulk of the thousands of staff who actually do the actual building and engineering over the construction period. And what that results in, in 2020, there was a a review by Denical, and they reviewed 6,000 academic studies on why mega projects around the world exceeded budgets and uh, exceeded deadlines. And they found that the UK model, because which pushes work further down the supply chain to contractors, subcontractors, sub-subcontractors, because of the lower margins as you go down that chain, that lower, those lower margins actually lead to constrained investment in innovation and management, which actually overall increases the cost and leads to, to bigger costs later on. Um, I think that's important to bear in mind. I think that, 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 is, that, that sort of explains very well how, why this, this whole sort of subcontracting system can be such an issue. And of course, that also leaves in delays as well. If there's not one company running it or a few companies running it, instead you have hundreds of companies, <clears throat> communi- communication between them takes, t- takes a while as well. And I think uh, uh, perhaps I could sort of just, just give that with, with, with HS2 as well. I mean, we've seen with HS2 how, how over budget it is, how, how over, over budget it is and how deeply delayed it is. And perhaps it's some of the same considerations it, it, um, for that as well. It's interesting. <clears throat> Sorry, it's interesting you mentioned that point about subcontracting. I'm just reading the article now. Actually, I didn't know it was so kind of, um, like I said, convoluted, so kind of divided up. You'd think, oh, and this is, you know, one company is taking charge of this, this one is taking charge of it overall. But I guess when you think about it, it makes sense. You know, it's a large sum of money. It's a lot of money to go to one person, and there's lots of different parts of of the project. You know, there's the building part, planning permissions, consulting, design, architecture, so on and so forth. Um, so I guess it does make sense if you think about it. But what I, I'm just reading a, bit, a paragraph from the article now, and it and it talks about why kind of what target cost contracts are and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you two both know a lot more than me about what target cost contracts are. But um, just a little sentence here talking about contractors basically in order to win contracts, they not only underbid, so they say they cost less, but when the government inevitably has delays and so on and so forth, they actually put up their prices a lot more than they they would have done in order to make up that gap. For example. Um, and it's called the. I think it's, it's that's quite interesting. I think for me, none of this seems, in the most basic moral, simple terms, fair. In the sense that you know, people are essentially lying, and people, not even lying, but I guess the industry is built in such a way that it's almost a normal thing to underbid and then over hyperinflate costs later on, and so on and so forth. And again, it doesn't seem. If you look into it, it doesn't seem like something that we should be doing, really. But am I being too naive, Tahir, do you think, or this is something that, that's just part of life, really? No, so this is a, this is a very big, uh, big issue within contract law. Mm. Um, I'm currently doing an advanced contract module, and we nice. look at government contracting, um, and this is, is it's quite a big issue. Um, government contracting was initially introduced to increase efficiency mm. um, within our uh, public, so public projects, infrastructure projects, these sorts of things. Mm. Um, and in many ways, it has been successful. Um, but equally, you get issues like this where governments over outsource, you could say. Um, they they spread their chips a bit too much um, or they reach into areas like we see with the post office sc- scandal where they privatize where really maybe they shouldn't. Um, and so, yeah, you end up with issues like these where, like you said, um, these target cost contracts are quite... Uh, well, now now that we're looking at it, they seem quite unfair, like you said, unjust mm. in the way that a private company can almost, um, I guess, play around a bit with taxpayers' money. Mm. They're almost offering the government, look, we'll do this for X amount of mm. money. And then later on down the line, they say, well, it's going to cost your taxpayer 
a few more million, a, a few more billion. Um, I, think, yeah. I think that point you mentioned really, again, keep forgetting that this is not just a private co- contract between two private companies, it's taxpayers' money, right? Yep. So it's the public's money, is people are paying um, a lot of money as well. You know, the other day, uh, Faraz was telling me about, you know, in- income tax and so on and so forth, and I was shocked to learn that, you know, 40, 45%, we don't even consider it because, you know, unfortunately, as uh, doctors, our pay might not go that, that far for a while, but <laughs> over a certain amount, you, you're getting taxed 40%. So 40% yeah. of someone's earning pretty much half their pay really yeah. is um is going towards products like these for example and certainly you know there are lots of other you know profitable government schemes and other kind of you know good use of the money but taxpayers money at the end of the day is, is the public's money like we said um and so really i think that we need to, that obligation to look after it really doesn't really seem to be being, being uh, met here i'm just conscious of time so i'm going to come back to you for us thank you for that do you have any last words for our, our listeners any um, um anything any plans for the for the upcoming weeks um yeah uh, i've got um i, I have uh, exams and things coming i was just, just going to say just on the this last point you were just mm, saying i think inherently i think it's important to say that you know a lot of the time people think of the government's money it's important to remember it, it isn't the government's money the, i think it might have been margaret thatcher who said that the government has no money it is the taxpayer's money and the taxpayer i think when you are the taxpayer i think then it's all, it's important to remember in these sort of discourses that it is the taxpayer it is us who are essentially contributing and we are going to burden the cost so we should i think take an interest in these things Mm. instead of uh you know being uh, apathetic to it yeah i I agree and and there's something perhaps i've been guilty of too when you say oh it's politics it's the government's but actually think about it now if it's if i'm putting money towards something i want to know where my money is going so it makes complete sense why we need to have that accountability but thank you very much uh uh, malik raz ahmed um hope you have a safe journey back home today and um, yeah, uh, until next time. See you then. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to move on to that's the end of our new segment. We've got a lot of topics there, a lot of variety in there. You know, bringing our own experiences. Um, we're going to go for a short break now, and after the break, we have a a caller, very um, respected caller, someone with a lot of experience, someone who's also in the law field. Yeah. It's interesting. Usually, I'm surrounded by Hamad Khan, who's in who's doing medicine and. Umar, Umar Saab does, uh, Umar Bhatti does the does law usually, but doesn't like talk too much about it. Um, so it's good to have a bit more, bit more legal experts in the field. Yeah, but I but think after the break we'll get a lot more legal expertise. I think you will. I think you will. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. My job here is just to make, just translate all the legalese into a uh, potential legalese into a uh, thing that makes sense for for people uh, with less IQ, perhaps like me. Um, but let's go into a break, and we'll see you shortly. A new station, the Voice of Islam. With live discussions, religion and culture, understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. God knows the little nuances of you. The little things that like only you would know. That you think about secretly. You don't tell anybody else. Just between you and him. Before I accepted Islam, before I learned about Islam, I was worried about it. I thought it was something to be worried about. The more and more I kept thinking about what religion should I choose, what belief should I have, a dominating thought came into my mind, is that choose the one that describes God the best. After learning about Islam and learning that the misconceptions are just that, misconceptions, I learned that it's something to embrace and it's not something to be afraid of and it's a guide for you. I believe that God paved a path that I could not veer from, that led me straight to Mirza Ghulam Ahmed al-Islam. The thing that's going to capture, that captured my heart, is the living God. 
Nobody else has this. You can, go, you can go do good anywhere. You can be persecuted in a lot of groups, right? But you can't get that living God. That is ours for this age. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. May the, may the peace and blessings of God be upon you all. And welcome back to the Saturday morning live show or the voice you're listening to, Voice of Islam Radio. Saturday, 27th of January, and we are back with our next segment. So we are very fortunate, very privileged to have a, a caller on the line with us, a guest caller. I'm just going to read out uh, quickly a brief introduction. Um, I believe he is on air. Um, so we have with us Hafiz Ghulam Mustafa Kamran, who is a member of the Ahmadi Muslim community, um, also a member of the Ahmadi Muslim Youth Association, and also a member of the Ahmadi Muslim Student Association. And he started his legal studies under the guidance of Hazrat Khalif al-Masih, the Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, um, may uh, God strengthen his hand. And uh, Mustafa recently completed his LLB uh, with honours and is currently studying a Master's in Law in International Law and Governance and International Human Rights Law at the University of Durham. He attended the United Nations Annual Climate Summit, COP28 as it's known, as an observer NGO delegate from Durham University. And Mustafa also works as a research associate with Durham University. His research is focused on understanding the concept of inherent human dignity in international human rights law, making it universal in light of the true Quranic teachings and underlining its significance for achieving the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. So we are very privileged and honoured to have uh, Mustafa uh, on the line today. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for having me. And peace and blessings will be upon you and everyone listening to this show. Zakla. Um, and just to remind the viewers in the studio, you have myself, Marit Grim Ahmed, and we also have Tahir Farooq, uh, a law student from uh, UCL, uh, a guest in the studio as well. So, um, as mentioned for the break, we have two uh, law experts, uh, or one expert, one expert to be, hopefully. Inshallah, uh, inshallah. Inshallah, uh, God willing, in, in, the, in the room with us. Um, but there's, there's one thing I, mean, I picked up in your introduction, uh, Mustafa Saab. Uh, which is about um, kind of your emphasis on 
using Quranic teachings and the fundamentals of, of the Holy Quran um, in your research. Um, before we talk about climate crisis, can you talk a little bit more about what that means to you and how that means living in a secular world? How can you apply, for example, your Quranic teachings or your Islamic background to your everyday research and everyday work? We believe that the Quranic teachings and the words directly given to the Holy Prophet in the form of Holy Quran, it has every solution, uh, a solution to every problem uh, being faced by humankind, be it uh, at micro level or, or macro level. So my research particularly focuses on the uh, the idea of inherent human dignity, and what I uh, my thesis claims is that the current discourse of international human rights law fails to highlight what exactly human dignity is, and what I think. And it's not that I think it's uh, what we have learned and what we have been taught uh, in, in Jamaat Ahmadiyya, alhamdulillah, being an Ahmadi, that the Quranic teachings of, uh, of telling that human beings are made on attributes of God and they have the nature of God inherent to them by birth is a very important feature of inherent human dignity. And without understanding uh, this precious uh, conscience or inherent human conscience, we cannot apply the concept of human dignity. And this is how um, I will mention here uh, a verse from Holy Quran, which states, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Rajeem, Fitratullahi Allati Fadaran Nasa Alayha, Zalika Deen Rukayim. Fitratullahi Allati means uh, the, the nature of God. Fadaran Nasa Alayha, on which Allah the Almighty has created uh, the mankind. La tabdila li khalqillah. You will not see any change or any alteration is in, God, in God's creation. And Zalika Deen Al-Qayyim, this is the everlasting and uh, ever-remaining religion. So this is the, the fundamental idea of how human beings are created and how uh, the human race should be protected. Oh, thank you for that. That's very insightful. And your background and your religious background and your religious convictions and your faith, you know, it's, I think it's very interesting to see how that guides you in your work. We always talk about faith and spirituality in a post- uh, post-Catholicism, post-Protestant world, where Christianity is, you know, a uh, kind of religion of peace, really, um, and the message of kind of being happy and, and being spiritual and being faithful, uh, I suppose, is is being spread around the world. But it somehow seems to lack kind of integrity and essence of what faith really is. It's refreshing to find someone or, or hear from someone who directly is using their religious book or, or, or their, their religion to inform their everyday life and have that connection between the, the secular world and also their own spiritual identity. But uh, the key part of, of why we, we, we have you on the, on the, on the show today and, and your experiences that make you so interesting for, us, for our listeners, hopefully, is that you, of course, went to the COP28 conference as an observer NGO delegate uh, from Durham University. Um, so... To give our viewers a bit of a background, and before we go into exactly what that means, could you tell us about a bit more about what is the climate crisis, um, kind of how it started, and what are the reasons behind this kind of global emergency? Well, again, um, I'll start from mentioning two Quranic verses before highlighting what climate crisis is and what is the importance of this, I think, the most pressing issue uh, of our time. The first verse I would like to mention is from Surah Al-Rahman, verses 8 to 10. It says that, Allah, the Lord, 
that the translation is he has God has raised the heaven high and set up the measure or the balance uh, that you may not transgress or exceed the measure or that balance and weigh all things in justice and fall not short of the balance. So the word mizan uh, here, uh, which means measure or scale or, or balance, if you like, is what uh, this whole climate change regime is about. And I will be referring to this word again and again. And it's coming from the Holy Quran. And another in- interesting perspective is, uh, is that in this verse, Allah the Almighty has mentioned, the skies and the role the skies are playing and the importance of what uh, the sky is in climate uh, change is, is very important. And I will refer to this again. So the next verse I want to mention here as well is, is a very uh, significant verse, which is from Surah Rum, verse 41. It says, Zahar al-Fasadu al-Barri wal-Bahri bima kasabat aydinasi liyuziqahum ba'adalladhi amilun a'allahum yajjun. It translates as corruption has appeared on land and see because of what humankind has produced with its own hands. And uh, consequently, that uh, Allah the Almighty may make them taste the fruit of some of their doings. So that, uh, and and the, the, the hope is there, that they will turn back. So uh, these verses, so I think you must want to say something. No, 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 please, please do continue. Um, yeah, so, uh, these verses, if you see, the words are there, and uh, we now I will refer to uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, IPCC. Uh, the Intergovernmental on Climate Change is uh, is, uh, is is in, is the panel which was uh, established in uh, 1988, and it was it was created to provide policymakers and the governments and the the, the regulators with the, with the scientific assessment on climate change, and it has uh, representatives from all over the states. Uh, legal experts and scientific experts, and they get together and and gather reports. The recent um, IPCC report mentioned that uh, the anthropogenic carbon emissions, by anthropogenic we mean the carbon emissions that are uh, produced by human activity. So the carbon that is produced by human activity over the last 200 years uh, is the sole purpose or perhaps is responsible for the increased global temperature today. So in a nutshell, um, the the climate which naturally absorbs the carbon uh, is is sufficient enough to absorb whatever carbon is being produced naturally. But the carbon that is being produced by human activity uh, and is way beyond the capacity of, um, of, of a planet, way beyond the absorbing capacity of our planet, causes the high temperatures. And this is, again, uh, referring back to the verses, is coming from the scientific discoveries that whatever is happening, uh, that the, the, uh, the corruption of, of natural forces on this land and sea, is because of what human produced with its own hands. So this is how the, uh, the, the intergovernmental panel alarmed or uh, warned the governments about climate change and about what's going to happen in near future. Another interesting uh, fact I will mention here is coming again from the IPCC report is that um, the generations being born in 1950, for example, and a, 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 a generation who is now almost 70 years old, is, is facing a different kind of temperature 
this time is experiencing uh, perhaps uh, you will say uh, one point two degrees for instance for example it's not accurate but the the, the generation being born today the, the, the children the, the progeny that is being born in 2020 and will be 70 years old in 2090 will see even warm climate and we see even 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 hotter uh, planet so i will refer back here to the idea of sustainable development the whole uh, climate change regime sits on the idea of that we uh, we need to uh, make choices that are uh, sustainable and the idea of sustainable development is coming from uh, a very famous brundtland report again it's from 1987 we say that uh, humanity has the ability to make development sustainable to ensure that it meets the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet uh, their own needs. So this is what is, in a nutshell, the whole uh, purpose of, of uh, the climate conferences is to make choices or allow the member states or the leaders of the states or representatives coming from all over the world to make them think about that what choices they should be making today uh, for the betterment of the current generation and for the future generation. So this is, in a nutshell, uh, uh, what is climate change and what is the purpose behind No, uh, thank you for that. I think that's that's a very comprehensive, very, very... Um very detailed outline and again backed up by we're just believe some backgrounds and, and convictions and, and evidences from the Holy Quran and so on and so forth. Tahir, I was wondering if you had some questions for um, Mustafa Saab, um, perhaps on a climate crisis, even going back to that, to that, there's so many people in, in today's world who deny that there's in the climate crisis happening or they say that climate change might be a force for good even. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that and, and any questions you might have on Mustafa Saab? Yeah, I think just um, as you were mentioning um, regarding other points regarding whether climate change is truly a major global issue. Um, I remember studying uh, in A-level geography and we were taught about Milankovitch cycles, um, which describe major glacial periods that are then broken up by interglacial warmer periods. Um, and that these are to do with changing, changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun. So I guess my question would be where there are potentially natural reasons or evidence for um, these warmer periods that we experience, um, are we potentially doing too much work to try and change what is already naturally inevitable? Well, this is a very good question. I think this is the the main issue that is being faced. I hope your question is over and I'm not cutting you. No, no, no. That's, that's all fine. So, um, unfortunately, um, and this is the irony with the IPCC, um, and I kept this point uh, for, uh, for, the, the, for later, but I will mention this now. The IPCC, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel for the Climate Change and the scientific data they are collecting, is unfortunately is controlled by the government of the countries. It was produced by the government of the countries, and they normally control what is being published and what is not being published. And they always give preference to their political um, ideologies, or they may maybe... Uh, the state sovereign references. So the the problem here is then, it's an iceberg issue, and it's iceberg irony, where the IPCC reports highlight the problems we are facing or we are going to face in future. It ignores 
a big chunk of information that governments stop uh, the IPCC to, to uh, publish. Why they do so is just to avoid spread uh, panic or maybe just to avoid uh, getting extra pressure on whatever they're doing, maybe on the economic side or maybe for the market forces. The problem with this is that a lot is happening, a lot has already happened. The, the narrative was that climate change is happening, but now the narrative has changed. It, it is already there. The nature is going to surprise us in many diverse, I mean, in, in diverse ways. And as you said, um, we, we can't say that it's, it's useless to work on it. We can't say that, okay, well, well it happened and what's the point now? The only thing is, the idea of sustainable development, again, is we have to stop whatever we're doing now. We have to make the choices, the current, the, the current way of living um, all over the world. This is not healthy enough for the planet. If not now, maybe in coming 50 years. So whatever we're doing now is for future generations. So yes, unfortunately, it is happening in coming years. We will see some un- unprecedented um, uh, calamities around the climate or maybe uh, for our planet. But uh, the efforts the governments are making, uh, the force to, to curb the climate uh, impact and reduce the carbon emissions should not be ignored because it will definitely maybe, in, let's say, uh, in seven decades or six decades, it will come back to the normal temperature. Well, that's the hope. But yes, you're right. Um, it is happening. It has happened. And it's a very huge um, natural curb to deal with. Yeah, definitely. Jazakallah. I thought that, um, that addressed the, uh, the issue quite well. And I thought what was particularly interesting was that point about what uh, governments may omit from their reports or from their research. Um, and in terms of what they put out about climate change. Um, but yeah, Jazakallah. Thank you for that. I think uh, I would like to really talk a bit more about the COP28 conference. Um, feel free to obviously add in any points that, you know, you're not mentioning alongside. But, you know, uh, we meant to originally have an interview with you, I believe, before you left, um, or, or, or whilst you, yeah, before you left. Another one now. Um, but if you could just tell us a little bit more about what the COP28 conference uh, is, because I remember about... Yeah, but it must have been about a year, year and a half ago, we actually had a radio show on the COP27 conference, which is last year's conference. I remember at the time, this whole thing was new to me, climate change. But I recently, for example, I started a consultancy with CBM, Christian Blind Mission, an organisation that looks at global health and looks at climate change and the effect on disabled people as well, and doing a project on them looking at how health systems are adapted to deal with uh, climate change and how those policies affect disabled people, persons with disabilities. And and so I've gotten a little bit more interested in, in this sector here. So... If you could tell me a bit more about how COP, what COP28 is about and, again, your own experiences from there as well. Right. So um, for, the, for the listeners, uh, I will briefly outline what uh, international climate change law is, uh, what the international climate regime is. So we just, uh, a couple of minutes ago, we talked about what climate change is. But what legally international law is doing is that uh, in 1992, uh, the... The United Nations uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, was adopted uh, by United Nations. And following that 1992 convention, uh, the UN has progressed in many ways um, uh, for dealing with the climate. Uh, in 1997, uh, the UN adopted the Kyoto Protocol, and in 2015, the, the latest advancement 
in terms of uh, dealing with climate change legally is the Paris Agreement and is the most significant uh, document. I will not go into uh, the legal jargon and details about it, but uh, these three agreements are international agreements or international treaties in, in, in their, uh, in their sta- as, as their status, and they are, uh, if not legally binding, they are agreed by uh, the member states and almost the whole, they cover the whole globe. So the COP uh, is abbreviated from Conference of the Parties. And the Conference of the Parties uh, is, is actually the parties to these agreements. Uh, first, the Conference uh, of the Parties to the United Nations Con- uh, Convention to the Climate Change, UNFCCC, and it also covers uh, the Kyoto Protocol, which is uh, called the CMP, uh, and uh, it's also covered the Paris Agreement, uh, which is called CMA. So the CMP and CMA are abbreviations from uh, Conference of the Parties, representing as, uh, as uh, serving as the member of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol, and the Conference of the Parties serving as the member of the parties to the Paris Agreement. So the COP uh, covers all these agreements and all the parties. So the main idea and the main difference between uh, the protocol and the Paris Agreement is very important to mention here, and it will explain how the current climate regime is working and what is happening at the COPs. And uh, this different difference will also highlight the main issue, the main problem with the whole system uh, of international law, particularly the fragment here we're talking about is the climate change or, or climate change law. So the, the Kyoto Protocol was targeting the developing, uh, so the developed countries, uh, the, the high emission uh, countries or the high emitters uh, of the carbon. And uh, it took what we famously call uh, the top-down approach, where the, the international institutions, uh, by virtue of um, Kyoto Protocol, were guiding or were um, demanding something from, from the member states, and they were kind of uh, ordering them what to do and what not to do. So this is top-down approach from Kyoto Protocol. So what happened? What the difference now we we are seeing in in the approach, in the legal approach, is coming from the Paris Agreement, and the Paris Agreement changed the whole uh, narrative the other way around. So the 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 argument now is that uh, it's a bottom-up approach, where uh, the Paris Agreement asks the states, the member states, to come and tell the international institutions or the international community that what part they can play to deal with this climate emergency. Sure. So I'm sorry, I'm just going no to problem. put you on hold for a second. We're going to go a quick short break for news for a couple of minutes and then we'll get back to you because I think it's really riveting stuff. Um, but we just need to cut to the news. So if that's sure. okay, I'm just going to take you off air for a couple of minutes and we're going to cut to the break, the news now. Thank you, Rich. Assalamu alaikum, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. We're back in the studio now, and we apologies for the uh, very swift interruption, but we are back on call with with our respected caller, our our guest caller for today, uh, Hafiz Ghulam Mustafa Kamran. We should remind the listeners that my just tuned in now is a uh, LLM student um, and a research associate with Durham University, and he recently said attended the COP28 climate change conference. Uh, United Nations Annual Climate Summit. So, so, so we're going to go back to you. I'm going to carry on our our discussion, um, but I'd like to f- ask a little bit more about you know what really is the significance of COP28 um, and kind of what your experience when you went there first of all, and then we'll talk about a little, little bit later on about what did it achieve and what did it not achieve. 
Well, thank you very much. And um, so the, uh, I, I will briefly mention what I was uh, talking about before uh, going to the break. And it, it, it's actually the main point of the whole discussion is the bottom-up approach of Paris Agreement. And it means that the states should be telling the international community what contributions they are going to make uh, to this whole climate change uh, regime and whole climate change issue. So, as we mentioned in the IPC, for the IPCC report, the IPCC report and the publication is controlled by the governments. So, again, for the bottom-up approach coming from the Paris Agreement, it is, again, sitting on the government's discretion, whatever they want to do, so there is a leeway and flexibility for them to take actions and to, to report uh, whatever they want to report. Now, coming back to the, the point of what uh, is the significance of COPs and COP28 in particular, uh, is that this year, uh, significantly, the, the COP was uh, one of its biggest uh, COP ever in the history. Um, and um, it was, um, in a way, in legal way, the, the gathering of GST, what we call is global stock tech. And global stock tech means that every nation uh, was bound to report the COP, the conscience of the parties, about what they are doing about climate change and how in future they will do this. So again, the irony is the discretion is on the governments, whatever they want to say or whatever they want to reveal or whatever they want to commit. So again, it, it falls short of many things. Uh, but but um, anyways, it, it, it's a significant point. But firstly, because it was the first ever global stock take gathered by uh, all the nations in COP. And secondly, um, first time ever in the conference of the parties uh, for climate change, uh, the, the nations uh, agreed on agreement for, uh, against, the, against the fossil fuels. So what they term is as, as transitioning away from fossil fuels. So in the last COP, India, because of the main uh, the main uh, coal user uh, among the member states was against this. But this year, this was a big agreement. The second big uh, leap, we can say, or second big achievement of COP28 uh, was uh, the, the funding for the least developed countries, which was agreed, uh, which is termed as loss and damage fund. And this loss and damage fund was started again in COP27, uh, but in the first day, in the first day of this COP, uh, all the nations unanimously agreed uh, that they will be uh, uh, gathering funds, totaling more than uh, $600 million, uh, U.S. dollars, uh, for, to mitigate the disasters, to mitigate the, uh, the problems, uh, uh, even the 12 countries, underdeveloped countries, and least developed countries are facing because of the climate change. And another important point uh, I would like to also mention is the, uh, and very interesting for our uh, science students as well and, and everyone, is the, the COP28 achievement of um, launching a declaration to triple nuclear energy capacity uh, by 2050. The, the nuclear energy uh, is recognized as, as the solution to the whole problem because it's, um, it's the, the capacity of energy it can produce without the emissions of carbon uh, is, is, is remarkable. So, um, of course, with uh, all the precautions and all, all uh, 
kind of uh, safety around it. But then this is an agreement reached by some uh, developed uh, states, not everyone, of course, because it's a very sensitive issue. But this is another leap that the countries will be tripling their nuclear energy in future, and this will be achieved by uh, 2050. So these are some uh, major, I would say, uh, layman uh, ideas of what, hap- what, hap- what happened in, in, in COP28. Mm. Thank you for that. And I, I don't think you, you mentioned it already, but I, I really would like to know from your personal experience, you, you went as an observer NGO delegate. Um, I know we've spoken personally on, on what that means and the kind of the green area and blue area and so on and so forth, but could you explain to our viewers, uh, sorry, listeners, I keep saying viewers for some reason, but to our listeners, if, if you could uh, let them know a little bit more about what that means, what kind of your role was, or kind of why were you there, if that makes sense. Um, uh, and yeah, a little bit more about that, please. Okay, this is very important. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, so my personal engagement with COPs and the processes started in 2021. And um, so it was in Glasgow, and then the second one was in Egypt. So where I was working with the Center for Sustainable Development, Law and Policy, and was uh, gathering some reports and was replying to some submissions for the COPs from, from the legal side of the university. Uh, but this year... Um, I was in the uh, delegate list uh, from, from the beginning, and uh, it was just the last minute when I was uh, given the opportunity and I was selected as uh, the delegate to physically uh, go and uh, observe what, what is happening. So very important point here, Fakreem, is that the international law, the whole international legal system, is dependent upon the, the multilateralism, what we call in, in legal terms is that uh, multilateralism is the idea of states coming together on one table to talk about different things. And since we're talking about personal experiences, me as a law student studying international law from last couple of years, I always wondered how these agreements, how these decisions uh, between different nations are reached. So for me, being at the COP and sitting in the blue zone, so by the way, the blue zone was the area where only the state representatives who were negotiating for these treaties were allowed to go. And we, as an observer, uh, as a professional or delegate observers for the, from the NGOs, were allowed. So it was quite fascinating, the idea that 198 nations, having different languages, different cultures, different uh, political preferences, and they all have uh, different perceptions or uh, interpretation of uh, uh, the phrases, even even English phrases they use, and coming to one agreement and sitting on one table uh, and gathering everyone in one state or in one, uh, uh, one city to talk about common concern for the mankind, that's climate change, is quite fascinating because they don't come to an agreement for the, the history is telling and the United Nations uh, uh, several resolutions are there we can see it's very hard to to uh, get all the nations come and agree on one thing so for me that was the first main fascinating idea about what happened in the call and secondly um there were some very uh, significantly uh, different like non-state actors and i will mention here that um it's, it's uh, again very uh, sad reality that 
that 90% of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions, the, the carbon emissions and other gas emissions, are under corporate control uh, and major countries. And that 60% of uh, global greenhouse gas emissions is controlled by 157, 157 private companies. And these 157 private companies are uh, cross-jurisdictional. They, they, are diff- they are international companies, and there is no reasonable way to, to monitor them effectively and to, you know, to, to, so the major emitters, uh, these private, private companies, were missed from the global stock take framework. So this is a big hole, big leap, or big crack in the whole system where the international law covers the states, but it fails to target the private companies because they will just make this excuse and argument that, okay, we operate in somewhere else. But what I'm trying to say is, for my personal experience is that there were some pavilions and there were some, uh, and you as a doctor were interested that there was, a, there was a health pavilion at COP and there was then a state pavilion. And I wrote about it, uh, the article is published as well. So what we talked about at health and faith pavilion is that the idea on top of being just a state responsibility of reducing the carbon emissions, they called it... Um, a call of conscience, and they call it uh, a, a sacred duty uh, instilled in faith to human man, to humankind. This was for the first time at COP28, not just because it was happening in, in Dubai, but it was coming from all religious leaders from around the world, that this is not just a political issue, this is a matter of conscience, and being conscientious uh, to deal with this issue, and uh, to, to tackle the climate. And third thing I would like to mention here is that the, the blue zone area was quite uh, confined to people who were registered in the United Nations system. But we, uh, as, as, as observers and other representatives, we have seen some very um, uh, kind of aggressive protests as well. And those products also were not just about climate, but also were about uh, the ceasefire and so on. Um, and these all uh, observations and experiences were for me particularly, uh, as an international law student, it's boring for someone else who is not interested in the field. But as an international law student, it was quite an experience to realize that this is not an easy process. We simply, uh, we can blame the countries for many reasons, but gathering people, uh, gathering 198 nations on one table and uh, agreeing on one single, single argument is a big deal, is a big uh, process, is kind of uh, uh, a big, big machinery, international law mechanism uh, working and, and uh, making some effective outcomes. No, I think that's that's very, very interesting. Again, one point that kind of stood out to me is, is a point that you made earlier, actually, about how, for example, your work is based on... Your work Your work is based on redefining human rights law, really, on the basis of chronic teachings and, and, and so on and so forth. And you mentioned how those pavilions, for example, are focused on not just the legal aspect of it, but the conscientious aspect of it as well, the moral obligation aspect of it as well, I suppose, as you mentioned. So that was really interesting for me to see that actually that the world is taking a little bit more of a look at this and something that you might not hear about because, for example, I hadn't really heard about a health and faith pavilion per se. Um, I knew there's a health aspect of it in the, you know, the, in the legal agreements and so on and so forth, but I didn't know about the separate pavilion or separate 
discussion that's happening at the, at the COP. So I think that's really uh, helpful and really insightful for you to mention that. So thank you for that. I think Thayer has a question actually that he wanted to ask you. So Thayer? Yep. So um, I read a Forbes article um, on COP28 and they mentioned that uh, some concerning language made it into the final draft, which was essentially that uh, there was a coal statement, which was that they would, or that uh, um, it, it, uh, that the COP parties would rapidly phase down uh, unabated coal and put limitations on permitting, um, uh, which was then weakened to efforts towards the phase down of unabated coal power. Um, so, what do you think of this? Um, I guess you could say weakening of of of, of wording, weakening of uh, it. Essentially, looks like a weakening of a stance um, from rapidly phasing down to just simply an effort towards the phase down. Do you think yeah. that we're heading in the right direction with climate change? Do you think enough is being done? No, this is a very. I think this was the, the one of the major issues and one of the major debates throughout the the COP twenty eight. So the issue uh, I would just um, articulate a little further for the listeners is that. The main target was the coal, as the, uh, the use of coal, um, because burning coal is the biggest uh, problem uh, for carbon emissions in the atmosphere. And the, again, it's a, it's a, it's a way how the international uh, community or, or state parties, they come together and they agree on words. So the word, uh, the, the word play, I would say, was, okay, should we phase down uh, fossil fuels, or should, should we phase down coal, or should we phase out coal? Or um, so this was the, the these two terms: phasing out, phasing down, and words like these were in, constantly throughout the COP. They were constantly under debate and under consideration. So yes, as you mentioned, it is. It was the uh, the, the pivotal the kind of uh, thing to consider. It was the central problem. It was the central issue for all of us. Um, but what happened on the last day it was announced. Um, on the closing plenary, the closing session of the COP28, that we are not going to talk about phasing out, we're not going to talk about phasing uh, down, but we will be talking about transitioning away from fossil fuels and transitioning away from burning the coal. So again, it it is definitely uh, not what we want. It is definitely not uh, pursuant to what uh, the IPCC reports and what the nature is, is warning us. But um, it is a little bit of a step forward. We can say a little step forward uh, in terms of against fossil fuel uh, and, and in terms of against how the nations are going to transition away from fossil fuels. But if we particularly talk about it, are we doing enough? Are we heading in the right direction? Uh, then it's, it's a clear, the clear answer is that no, we are not. Because we are already in this crisis. We are already uh, uh, facing this. But then one, uh, I will uh, finish this, uh, the answer to this question on just one thing, that while we talk about the emissions, then comes the argument that, okay, this, the developed states who are emitting carbon from maybe one century or maybe more than uh, 100 years are now telling the least developed countries to stop emitting carbon, but they, uh, to stop emitting carbon, but they are kind of, late to the party, that they want to develop their countries now, but how they can do uh, without emitting carbon? So this is a big question. So how it, it's a question of uh, equality and uh, how this can be stopped. So this argument is then 
the, the, the transitioning away from fossil fuels uh, is not just that developed countries who are phasing down or phasing out or transitioning away from fossil fuels are just not responsible for stopping, mm. stop burning fossil fuels, but they are also responsible to help the least developed countries to, to make advancements in a way that they burn the lesser, lesser amount of carbon. I so think this is also the onus is on the developed states to help the least developed countries as well. Absolutely. And I think that's, funnily enough, you almost read my mind there across 200 miles away because I, I was going to ask about the, the historical context, actually, because in, in my studies in international development, um, one of the modules was key issues in development studies and development is essentially the study of, again, how countries, you know, go from being less economically developed and the global south, for example, and kind of being more economically developed and socially developed and, and, and so on and so forth. And so it was interesting for me to read about the effects of post-colonialism, which is a massive kind of conversation and discourse happening in the world of international development <coughs> right now, which is that the effects of colonialism, the the use of resources in countries by colonial powers, for example, and the kind of not the investment in infrastructure that was required to support that, and kind of that being the reason or being partially the reason why many of the less developed countries of the world, the less privileged countries of the world, the low and middle income countries of the world, LMICs as we call them, um, why they are lagging behind. For example, uh, talking about economic uh, revolution, the industrial revolution, for example, there are many countries that are 50 to 100 years behind now, for example, but that is not, for example, due to some fault of their own necessarily. It perhaps might be because of post-colonialism effects and the effects that the, the colonialism had on, on their societies. And so not blaming colonial powers per se, but certainly acknowledging that you know they had a role to play in their, their delayed development, as you mentioned, as you mentioned it, late to the party almost. Um, and so was there any discourse, and what was the discourse centred around any actions around that that being taken to kind of level the playing field, as you said, you know, aim for equality uh, rather than equity? Well, this was, again, one of the achievements of COP28. So uh, the efforts are that the, the developed states will uh, transfer, uh, and the, 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 the phrases are used are transfer of technology, uh, and again, again under the, the the mitigation pillar of the whole regime. So there are these pillars: adaptation, mitigation, and loss and damage. So under the adaptation, it means that the world should be adapting to whatever is happening, and mitigating means that we should mitigate whatever already happened, and loss and damage fund means that we should be financing. So under these kind of pillars, the developed states are responsible to transfer the technological advancements to the underdeveloped states. So you will see, and you already are seeing in, in, uh, that you, the, um, the exchange of solar panels and the exchange of um, energy efficient equipments in terms of water use, in terms of uh, energy use, and in terms of uh, gas use and so on is being transferred from the developed states to the underdeveloped countries and just for the sake of uh, global emissions. Because we, if we, even if we don't share the land, even if we don't own the land, we, we share the same air. And this is the whole climate change regime is about. And it's not just that it's being just uh, a soft obligation, just states are, will be running away from it. But then this is also recognized by courts as well to mitigate and adopt and uh, finance the, the weaker states. Yeah, Jazakallah, this is uh, very insightful stuff. I think just wrapping up now, um, I was, again, in the Forbes article, I think I saw that um, there felt like 
the agreement was a bit incrementalist in the fact that it didn't take too many great steps in uh, achieving um, sort of a, an agreement on, on, on what should be done. It didn't do anything extensive, but it's done a lot um, in small steps. So do you think that we're heading in the right direction overall in terms of resolving the climate, uh, the climate crisis? And do you think overall COP28 was a success in, in achieving that aim? Well, it's, uh, it sh- I should use uh, uh, some diplomatic ideas here, I think. Um, so I, I cannot make a stark uh, kind of uh, statement there, but I will say when we talk about COPs, is a continuous process. Every year, before and after COP, you will see synonymous news articles around the COP. COP was a failure, or COP, or maybe state member states are gathering and uh, leaving a foot car- uh, carbon footprint, uh, and this and that. But I would say, for example, it's a continuous process, and nothing has done so far, nothing has achieved, but it's uh, it's being postponed the next COP. Well, this is a very um, diplomatic uh, answer to that. And I will also say that, okay, it's not a major failure, or I would say it's a minor failure, or I will even not say it's a major success, it's a minor success. So in both ways, it's a major, minor failure and minor uh, success both at the same time. Why it's a minor success? Because yes, we agreed on something. Yes, we agreed transitioning away from fossil fuels. Yes, we agreed to gather 600 million US dollars for to mitigate the least developed countries. And yes, we are going to um, triple the nuclear energy uh, transition. And why is the minor failure is that, yes, it's not enough. Uh, yes, we agree that uh, there was a lot pending and remains uh, postponed till next COP. And there, there, there's a big deal of agreements that has not been reached. And, it will be done in in future COPs. But looking at the reports, again, unfortunately, it was not enough. It will will never be enough from the state parties if we leave it to their discretion. And in that term, COP was both a minor failure and a minor success, uh, both at the same time. I think spoken like a, a true lawyer right there, Mustafa Saab. But um, I, I think you, again, you made some very, very valid points, very relevant points. In that, you know, there are both pros and cons of the whole thing. I guess as a layman, a very, very basic question, uh, perhaps a very ignorant question, maybe would be that: was it was it better to have this cop than not have a cop at all? I guess from what it sounds like, I suppose is that there were some advancements made, um, but it wasn't as as good as it should have been. What do you think on that? So I would, in uh, in a very uh, emotional words, I would say, is that the conscience of the parties under the Paris Agreement, under the United Nations Convention framework, or the whole UN climate change system, is the only um, available avenue, or it's only the, the most promising, I would say, the most promising avenue for multilateralism, or for all the states to come together. You will see in all of the systems, we, we hardly have all the states uh, on one table. So the climate change regime itself gives a platform for everyone to come and exchange their ideas, exchange their experiences, and uh, it allows uh, even conflicting states to come on one table because the climate change is, is a common concern. So we, I, I will never say that it, uh, it should not take place at all. Uh, it, it is a crucial conference 
not just for uh, the country, but for every single living being. And uh, it should happen every year. And, 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 it, and you will see, and our future generations will see the positive outcomes uh, of these conferences, uh, the, uh, the decisions being made. And again, I think that's a very good summary of what it is, really. And um, I think that point you made there about you know conflicting countries coming down and sitting together and having that united, you know, this seems like a more united ver- version of the United Nations. Even um, I mean, it is obviously a, part, a conference of the United Nations, but it seems like this is one area in which the UN really is is, is working harder and and making some progress. And I guess if you think about it really, we we also used to living in an interconnected world, a world, a global village, really. That if we step back and think that. A hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, where the world was right now in terms of connectedness, in terms of global decision making, we are even fifty fifty odd years ago, the height of the Cold War, for example, or even just after the Second World War, where we were on a global stage. I don't think we could imagine coming one hundred ninety eight countries coming together to make to even talk about common topics and common themes. So I guess that in itself, we sometimes fail to understand the value of. Uh, you know, global work and the value of such conferences, and, and like you said, bringing these countries together and having that stage for a global discourse. Um, so I think that's just one thing for me to even keep in mind and to really reflect on and think that we can come together. Something climate change is, is supposedly something you know only technically what a change of a few degrees per year or a few degrees over the course of a century, but even something as small as that, we understand the effects and its importance of it, and only then can we kind of talk about it really. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's you know some reflection for myself personally. Darius wanted to ask if you had any last thoughts, any final questions for Mustasab. No, no, no. I thought um, everything was quite comprehensive. Um, come away with a lot of information, come away with a lot of new knowledge. Um, but yeah, I just think, uh, I guess with uh, the urgency of the moment, you know, this is the hottest year on record. Um, and yeah, we are taking small steps. I guess in the future, we're looking for maybe some greater steps, something a bit more extensive, but... I think like Mustafa, Mustafa Saab said, um, uh, these small steps, year on year, every year, are very important. Thank you for that. And Mustafa Saab, finally, like to come to you. Um, any concluding words, any kind of piece of advice, any kind of key takeaways for the for the listeners um, that you'd like to give give um, from your experiences? Any last words that you might have? Uh, I was just being mindful, mindful of time. I would refer back to the chronic verses uh, I, I mentioned in the beginning. It's about uh, it's about creating balance in your life at micro level and macro level. And then there is a hope, uh, as it's mentioned in Holy Quran, that there is a hope that humankind will return back to, uh, to the normal situation, the normal state of affairs. The only thing is, is a drop in the ocean argument. Just It is not uh, helpful to argue about that is my drop in the ocean is helpful. It's just about just doing your effort, whatever it is, and then you're done. You just play your part and just, uh, you know, look at these spaces, look at these, what is, what, whatever is happening uh, in terms of climate change, and uh, just play your part, be aware of whatever is happening around you. And uh, yes, we can, we, can, uh, we can change this, we can turn it back to the normal situation, and this is for the sake of our future generations. Thank for that uh, once again, um, and thank you for for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure, Masasab. Um, we're going to cut now. We're going to now cut to our break, and we will should all 
join you then after the break for our last couple of segments, our last segment. Um, but we hope the listeners have enjoyed, have understood, have been informed in a lot of key topics and key issues there. Certainly for ourselves in the studio, it's quite a reflective piece, very comprehensive, very detailed piece. Certainly one to, to listen back and rewind and, and delve into deeper, actually, um, if you wish to, unlike some of the other conversations you might have in the next half an hour. But uh, who knows, you might find them interesting as well. So we'll join you after the break. Uh, see you soon. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. In a dream, I saw an angel seated on an elevated platform in the guise of a boy. In his hand, he was holding a pure loaf of bread which was very bright. He gave it to me and said, this is for you and the dervishes who are with you. I saw this dream at a time when I was not at all known, nor had I put forth any claim, nor was there any group of dervishes with me. But now I have a large jamaat of people who have voluntarily chosen to put their faith above the world, and have thus reduced themselves to the position of dervishes. Having migrated from their homes and having separated themselves from their relatives and friends, they have taken up permanent abode near me. I have interpreted the loaf of bread as meaning that God himself will provide for me and for my followers and that we will not be rendered anxious on account of lack of provision. This has been the case over a long number of years. There is an account narrated about Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani, may Allah have mercy on him, that when he set out away from home for the purpose of his education, his noble mother sewed his share of 80 coins into the underarm of his shirt and advised him, Son, do not lie. When Syed Abdul Qadir departed, on the first day of his journey, he passed through a jungle that was inhabited by a large band of thieves and robbers. A party of robbers confronted and apprehended him. The robbers asked, What have you got in your possession? Syed Abdul Qadir thought to himself that he was being tested in the first stage of his journey. He reflected over his mother's advice and said, I have 80 coins which my noble mother has sewn into the underarm of my shirt. The robbers were extremely surprised on hearing this and said, What is this dervish saying? We have never seen such a righteous man. They took him and putting him before their chief related the entire story. When the chief questioned him, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani gave the same response. Finally, when his shirt was torn at the place that he had described, it turned out that there were indeed 80 coins sewn into his shirt. All the robbers were astonished, and the chief asked why Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani had told them the truth. At this, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani mentioned the advice that his mother had given him before he departed. He said, I have set out as a student of religion. If I had told a lie at the very first stage of my journey, what could I expect to attain? And so, I chose to stand by the truth. When Syed Abdul Qadir had said these words, the chief burst into tears, fell at his feet, and repented for his sins. It is said that this chief was the first follower 
of Syed Abdul Qadir Jilani. In short, truth is a thing that delivers a person in even the most trying and difficult of times. Saadi is true when he says, Never have I seen go astray the one who treads the right path. Therefore, the more a person adopts the truth and develops a love for the truth, the deeper a love and understanding they develop for the word of God and also for his prophets, because they are an example and source for all those who are truthful. This principle is also prevalent in the following instruction. Be with the truthful. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on The Voice of Islam. You are joined by myself, Malik Takri Mahmoud, in the studio and Tahir Farooq um, in the studio as well, a guest. And before the break, we were discussing um, the cl- climate change crisis, uh, the COP28 conference with our respected caller, Hafiz Ghulam Mustafa Kamran, uh, who is a research associate at the University of Durham and a LLM student. And in this segment now, we'll move on to something perhaps a little bit more a bit more of an easy, easy listen to. Something a bit more, a bit more, kind of uh, easygoing. A bit more of a casual conversation, um, and that is, we'll talk about our lives. We'll talk about what's happening, um, relevance we have might have to the viewers, uh, listeners. Um, not everything in my life is interesting. Um, I'm sure Tyres is a bit more interesting than mine. I'm sure there's lots we can talk about. With lots we can share. But actually, one thing I want to start off with is talking about student activism and. I'm lucky enough to go to LSE, Dahir goes to UCL, and these are two universities which have been very kind of active and proactive in, in student activism, you know, with the Palestine protests and even before that. Um, you know, I went to a Palestine protest a few Saturdays ago in December and the vast amount of people that were there on the streets and the support and the reception they had. And the very day, the next day actually, um, so everyone was sacked. So perhaps I can say I was I was one of the reasons why she was sacked. <laughs> but um, Tari, tell us a little bit more about the UCL activism. What's been happening? What have you heard on campus? Have you been involved? Yeah. Have you been doing uh, doing some activism of your own? Well, so I personally haven't been too involved with the activism. However, I've seen a lot of it. That's what they all um, say. That's what they all say. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, for sure, there's a big, big um, uh, activist sort of voice at UCL. Um, Particularly when we uh, when, when we're talking about Palestine, um, I think our Islamic society and the mm. um, Arab and North African society are very strong. Mm. So, uh, whenever there's a protest or any sort of event, even just generally, their mm. general events are, are packed. Um, so, of course, protests um, can you can expect the same. Uh, I've I've even been in tutorials where mm. I've been on pretty much. As UCL and LSE are city universities, mm. um, the campus is spread out. Mm. Buildings are kind of on opposite ends of a street, mm. sometimes a few streets down. Mm. Um, my law faculty is a few streets down from the actual student centre main campus. Mm. Um, 
but you could hear uh, the protests from from our tutorial window. I remember everybody in our tutorial just turning around, looking out the window, thinking, "What is going on?" It was just you know, very loud, very active. Um, uh, and then other times as well, when I've been studying mm. on Wednesday afternoon, Friday afternoon, mm. and um, there's a procession just going through the mm. library. Mm. Um, procession is, a, is an interesting way to describe it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's quite literally a march, you know, um, all through campus, all through the important streets on campus, because like we said, city campuses, mm. um, uh, you you kind of you can't just go to one you can't just demonstrate on main court yeah, yeah, right yeah, yeah. because everybody's be everywhere. everywhere else yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. you can't just sit on main court and and and, and do your activism well, there you, you seem to know quite a lot about the activism are you sure you're not have been involved yeah. <laughs> not as a bad thing not as a bad thing we encourage our viewers definitely to um, be involved in politics um, but it's interesting you mentioned that LSE there was also a protest right outside the cent- <coughs> center building it's called um, and yeah I found it quite interesting um, what they were saying and definitely raising awareness but. For me, I guess the question always is that, and it's interesting, and I mentioned why, but I always think, what's the point? Similar thing with boycotting, actually. Um, and we won't go too much into the, the, the depths of the Israel-Palestine conflict that's been covered many times in the show before, but does protesting, or in general, does activism make a difference? Um, I never thought it did, until that Swallow River sacking, and I was like, this is, I mean... The swaying public opinion is one thing, but a lot of the time protests and we saw with the NHS, for example, you know, all the, I mean, the, even striking, for example, you can see all the activism and yet no payoff for right now. But perhaps it was the activism, um, not just by students, but by everyone and the protests and the boycotting that that perhaps led to that political change. What do you think? Yeah, I think I think it's just um, it's also just amplified by social media. Um, we cannot escape activism everywhere you look, everywhere you turn. However, you consume media, you you'll end up seeing it now. Um, so I think that's a that's a big thing to play, and a lot of the people in power have to see it. Whereas before they could almost turn a blind eye or be sheltered from from seeing what is really happening um, in the street with regards to activism. Now, um, the minute they turn on their phone, the minute they go to check Twitter, even after uh, or X, which we should say now, mm. even after they um, are done with work, uh, they're surrounded. They're they're, they're kind of entrenched in this mm. uh, activism so yeah I think social media plays a big uh, role in that um, impact I, th- I think definitely and I think that point about activism is all well and good and the purpose of activism is to spread the message but I think having conversations even within own student circles I guess even the fact that it starts off conversations you might see a protest you might say to your friend oh what's happening outside what's all the noise about and again that starts a conversation about whatever issue they might be protesting about so I think in that sense it is quite useful and helpful my only concern with that is that does it lead to more echo chambers and a more of an echo chamber environment like for example you might spot the protest outside I might do it as well but the person in the corner who doesn't support the, the protest who does not support the activism might just stay quiet and not intrusive engage in the conversation and really are you spreading awareness or are you just kind of talking about the same thing with the same people who all agree with you? I'll give you a bit of an example again, and this might be well be exclusive actually with the radio, but there was an event in YouTube planned in King's College London um, with a few of the societies that are involved in the, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and kind of some one of the main societies, I won't name who, but they actually pulled out because they said their reasoning for pulling out is the interesting part. They said it's not an issue worth debating, we feel like it's a given. And, you know, I really disagreed with that because I was like, if you have a different view to someone on a particular topic, then 
to if you know that you are right, for example, then you have to kind of convince the other side. You have to convince them that that you are right. If your arguments are so strong, you can't just say, "Oh, I'm right," and stick to that. That's not healthy debate discussion, is it? That's just uh, you know you saying one thing and expecting everyone to agree with you. Um, and if they don't agree with you, then you're not willing to change their views. Um, so again, that, my concern about echo chambers. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I do understand the concern yeah. um, because like you said if everybody's kind of feeding into their own mm. uh, viewpoint if everyone's regurgitating the same things to each other mm. it's only going to strengthen that belief and I guess you could also run the risk of turning a blind eye to mm. other views mm. um, at the end of the day uh, wh- whatever stance you do take in any matter there's always the chance that you are ignoring some aspect mm. of the other side which mm. may be true mm. also um, so it's important to, to, to keep an open mind, to keep the discourse open mm. and be willing to discuss everything. So then that goes back to the point of, well, we should be discussing these things mm-hmm. because if we don't, then we don't actually get to hear every view. Mm. Um, so it's important that uh, the person who did pull out actually did mention to you the reasoning mm. because now you understand that there are some people with that stance mm. and you're able to, to kind of tailor your, your, your message Mm. Um, to maybe include those people or address that issue as mm. well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I had another point, but it's just escaped my mind. Uh, it will come back to me. Don't worry, it's, it's a quarter to 12 on a exactly. Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, late Friday nights, you know, uh, everyone's busy, dinners, social events. So um, yeah, we can forgive them for that. But um, yeah, I definitely think that's definitely interesting discussion to have about student activism and universities. And universities, let's talk about AMSA, actually. We're both members of the Ahmadi Muslim yeah. Student Association. Um, and actually, UCL AMSA, King's AMSA, LSE AMSA are quite, you know, they're quite vivid, quite bright uh, AMSA. I mean, we met at an event, uh, a social dinner a few weeks yeah. ago at the UCL AMSA event. Um, but actually, probably more appropriate for me to do this, but I'll probably give a short intro of what AMSA is. But what is your kind of impression of AMSA? What does AMSA mean to you, for example? I think for me, the biggest thing is it's a network. And, to, um, and again, clarify, the AMSA is the Ahmadiyya Muslim Student Association. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, AMSA, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, Students Association, is first and foremost kind of a network um, of students that are willing to discuss interfaith matters as mm. well. Mm. Um, it's not just exclusively Ahmadi. Um, we're willing to kind of just teach about, or not necessarily teach, but just inform people about Islam in general. Have discussions, yeah. Have discussions, exactly. Um, and... Also, it, I think it really helps to to bring almost a sense of community. I feel that with some of the other societies at university, it can kind of almost feel a bit exclusive or a bit of a almost like a cult at times. Mm. Um, whereas with AMSA, we're trying to extend our arms a bit more, mm. um, encompass more people, more ideas. Um, We've talked about this a lot exactly. beyond beyond the show, but. The Ahmadi Muslim Student Association, it's it's a forum where, you know, any students can come and we can talk about lots of different things, you know, we can have social events, we can have educational events, we can have outreach events and, and so on and so forth. But again, it kind of, I'm linking that back to student activism, this might be a bit of a reach, but it's again, it's that point of talking and discussing and debating and it's no point, sh- for me, the way I see it is that there's no point shouting at someone or having a protest or protesting at something if you're not then also willing to sit down with the opposite side or sit down with people who disagree with you and have that same conversation with them. Exactly. You know, there's no point of preaching to the faithful. The faithful are always going to believe to a certain extent, right? Exactly. But for me, the thing is that when I know that something is true or an argument is valid 
or my points are valid is when I can convince someone of the veracity of them. I'm not going to convince everyone, I know that's for sure. But if I can at least put my point across, a neutral person perhaps can see that, you know, these are valid points, this is something that makes sense, and I'm able to kind of control myself and have a civilised discussion with someone on something that we disagree about and still have a civilised conversation about it, that's at that point where I'm like, you know what, this is this is where it's become now useful discourse De- rather than pointless. Definitely, and I think uh, that's pivotal. Is what what really is pivotal about what you just said is the idea that we shouldn't be trying to um, sway everybody or mm. bring everybody over to your side. It's a simple matter of, a matter of informing. Mm. Once you inform a person about something, they go away, they <coughs> do their own research, or or they're exposed to a new idea that they then think about more. It's food for thought. Mm you kind of let them come to a, a conclusion on their own about it as well. Um, and then through that, uh, you, you're able to, um, I guess, that's get, what your, get your point across. That's what discourse is, right? It's a discussion exactly. at the end of the day. It's not a persuasion, it's not a speech, it's exactly. not a lecture. Um, and, and again, this space is, for me, has, has a basis in Islamic teachings, you know, in the, in the Holy Quran, a very famous word, verse, الدين, there's no compulsion in religion. But for me, I, I take that to mean as in there's no compulsion in any kind of aspects of, of personal belief and, exactly. and personal faith and personal opinion. You can't follow, you can't force someone to be Muslim, you can't force someone to support you. You have to convince them there's a difference. Exactly. Um, and, and I think this this looks back to what we were talking about, uh, the student activism, like you said, mm-hmm. um, in the idea that we should almost, we, we, we focus on these large-scale events, protests, things like that, but also activism is so key in just individual conversations that mm. you have with people around mm. you. That's activism and as well. That's activism, 100%. The easy conversations you can have with your friends, people mm. who are, it may not be as informed of a situation as you are, mm. but you're just able to give them information here and there, and mm. suddenly they're now way more informed of something that they weren't before. Mm and they're able to come to their own conclusion which mm. may end up being similar to your own mm. um, and just through not necessarily like, like you said co- not having any compulsion or imposing your belief on them you're able to guide them down a, an informative path mm. for them to come to a reasonable conclusion on their own mm. I think that's that, that's, so, that's such a crucial point there that and the reason why diversity is so important is because everyone brings different, something different to the table you might have your own viewpoint you might have your own you might be an activism for a particular cause that you want to champion. Yeah. Um, for example, I'm a big champion of global health. There are a lot of people who don't think global health, public health is very important in the world of medicine. But I'm, something that says, I'm someone who says that healthcare inequalities in the world, something that really bugs me, that really irks me, and something that I really want to you know, be, be an activist about, you know, spread awareness of that. You might have a particular field, you know, for example, international human rights law or the rights of refugees, for example, and so on and so forth. Yeah. That might be something that interests you. Um, and so you are able to bring your opinions onto the table. But again, that doesn't mean that your opinions are now valid and import, imposed on every single person. It means that that is another aspect, another side of the argument, another type of debate that you can bring to the table, something that you can bring to the table and have a discussion with someone about. So I guess, yeah, I think that's really important and, and really We've gone from kind of hating on activists a little bit to being actually we're all activists in exactly. our own way. Exactly, um, and like we said, it's, it's these little conversations. It's bringing new information to the table, like you said. That is all activism, one hundred percent. Well, we'll move on to the final segment of our of our um, show. Actually, it's interesting because I don't think we've had this conversation. I mean, we have briefly had the conversation, yeah. but uh, sports and good news is is the. Um, is the last segment. Now, this is usually done by Omar and a few of the the guys in the studio. Yeah. Um, I have to admit, I I was a decent. I'm th- and thankfully, thank God, my brother's not on the call right now, so he can't argue with me. <laughs> he can't, he can't disagree with me on this. But I, I was quite into football, year seven, eight, nine, you know, secondary school. Yeah. But when I started university, I kind of, I don't know, got too busy. I never kind of got into the whole 
an environment of you know watching a team regularly and devoting two hours of my life every yeah. every few days to watching. Well, a, I'm, I'm about to devote a team an, a, a two hours of my life. Okay, uh, I think Arsenal playing today. Yeah, so I, su- I will be. I will be. You support Arsenal, right? Yeah. So it's really annoying because my flatmate supports Arsenal as well. Yeah. Um, my friend that I just showed you as well. Right. Um, and so yeah, I, I do watch matches along with him. But you know what? I don't get it. Why don't you just watch the highlights? Well, I I, I guess. The older I got, the more I started to enjoy football on a more detailed okay, level. Okay. I'm just a very detailed person. The opposite to me. Yeah, 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 I'm a very detail-oriented person. Okay. Um, so when I'm watching football now, I like to watch tactical setup. Uh, I like to think about what is the manager doing, oh, what is his mentality, what. Yeah, and yeah. and I think you get you get to see so many things in a live match that you don't see in the highlights. You're scanning um, the crowd. You're just seeing who's uh, yeah. Yeah, who's paying attention, who's in the yeah. crowd, who's on the crowd. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I think. Um, yeah, I I just love it. Uh, I don't know what happened. Uh, I think uh, I went through a period just mm. like you mm. where um, I, I became uninterested. I was really interested as, as a kid mm. from up until I was about 11, 12 years old. Mm. Then I started playing cricket a lot more. Mm. Cricket became the new mm. uh, major interest. Mm. Um, and it still is to an extent. Um, but I think in the past two, three years, football viewership on my mm. side has gone up a lot more I think that was me with rugby because I played rugby from year 7 to about year 11 Yeah. and um, and then again in, in, in university as well the first couple of years until I was permanently injured yeah. but um, I, I really found it interesting because the rules of rugby are so complex Yeah. that you have to really be in the space to understand because if you yeah. for layman looks like every 5 seconds you get a penalty for no reason very whatsoever. codified yeah um, it's similar to cricket right mm, yeah, in, in yeah. that sense yeah. even in the sense that I used to get told off all, t- all the time by my coach because I'd give away penalties and me being year 7 year 8 I had no idea what half the rules were no one sat down and talked to me okay this is how you play this is what you do all I knew is don't pass the ball forwards Yeah. and and that's it your job is to smash into people so I don't I don't know I, I don't know um, yeah, why I even enjoyed it that much but Again, once you go into it, then again the aspect you said about tactics and for like formations yeah. and like um, how you know how you know the strategies and so on and so forth. That was really interesting. Did you ever play rugby? Uh, I not not really, just uh, PE stuff. Oh, you yeah, know? Fine, fine, you fine, know how fine. you do yeah, it yeah, in, yeah. in a British school. You just you, you learn in year seven, year eight, year nine, and that's it. You know what's funny? I remember. Um, so Fraz and I went to the same school, but I don't think yeah. I think it was two years younger than this. season year seven, eight. There was a time where football was banned in our school, or were you banned from playing football in break times? Um, again, the reason was wasn't explained to us, but we just a bit a, a bit elitist, I suppose. It just it seemed like <laughs> it seemed like rugby was a sport, and you had to play rugby, and that was that. Um, so I, f- I found that really interesting. But what position do you play in football? Um, so right now I play at university. I play for the Law Society. Seven I, aside, five aside. Uh, we play nine aside. Okay, um, that's a bit, it's a bit odd. But. Yeah, it's a bit odd, but it's the in between between seven and eleven, right? Fine, so yeah. it's a, it's a bit better. Yeah. Um, but. I normally play like I'm like a box to box number eight centre oh, midfield. Okay, yeah. yeah, up and down the pitch. I have that, to be an engine. See, that's good because I play yeah. I play centre back, obviously. Okay. Having, <laughs> having a good CDM in front of you, very very yeah. crucial, very important. Yeah, being up and down, uh, honestly, it's t- it's hard, and especially because half of the law students are unfit themselves, uh-huh. and I'm doing uh-huh. about three persons, three positions work. Yeah. Um, but I enjoy it. It's fun. Three and one, yeah, cold. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think. I think yeah, I think football and sports is is quite fun. I was meant to play yesterday. So I actually played with the ISOC at King still, okay. um, with not for the team, but they have a casual like. Uh, well, I say casual is quite heated actually sometimes, yeah. but it's like a tournament. I think it's. I want to say it's eight to. So I think it's more like six, seven aside. Well, if you need a centre midfield, yeah, box to box, eight to eight, let me know. I'll let you know. know. We play. We play in St Thomas's actually. Okay. Well, next to St Thomas Hospital, there's a park there. Let me know. Um, I'll see if I'm free. I'll let you. I'll let, I'll let you know. The standard is pretty good to be fair, but you okay. got to be on your game. Um, 
but yeah, I think sports is just so interesting. Again, that's an, a, a, an example of a social activity at university that you can get involved with. Yeah. Alongside Amsa, for example, we've talked about this again offline, but being having a social life at university is so, so important, especially if people, and let's bring it back to, let's bring a bit of faith into this, uh, at some yeah. point during the show might be good. But um, <laughs> what's Islam going back to the Islamic aspect of it? Um, and as Muslims, of course, you know, we believe in Islam, Ahmadiyya, and uh, knowing your roots and knowing your uh, spiritual obligations is so important and keeping you grounded at university and there's so many social opportunities at university but there's a point mentioned actually at some feedback given to the dean or feedback given to the medical student association that for example at Freshers Fair there was lots of activities but a lot of them were to do with drinking and drinking culture and going to the clubbing and so on and so forth and so non-alcoholic Freshers Way events were introduced for the first time I think a few years ago as by at King's by the uh, the Medical Student Association which I thought was fantastic because it gave a sense of inclusion to actually quite a large majority I mean not the majority but quite a large section of the cohort I mean King's in first year there's about 400 students and I would say definitely the large majority of them you know yeah definitely the or a large section of them for example would be more interested in non-alcoholic events yeah. than alcoholic freshers events so that's now something that, you know that's been picked up by universities now as well but it's something that AMS has been doing for a long long time yeah. established in 1996 actually AMS has been going for quite a while yeah. and this is something that identified that need to have some other social replacement because you can't just sit at home you can't just isolate yourself yeah, definitely what yeah. else I mean what kind of social events have you kind of enjoyed going to beyond football yeah. at university that's kept you involved um, our law society is thriving at UCL mm-hmm. um, probably one of the biggest law societies just across mm-hmm. the UK I mean, not as good as Kings but still yeah, we'll see. I don't know <laughs> have you been to any law so- Kings events I mean as a non-law student there probably not but, but <laughs> anyway <laughs> I've, no. I've heard about it anyway, yeah. anyway um, uh, but yeah I think uh, you make a very good point um, a lot of the law so- events that are very well subscribed to and that people go to all the time involve drink involve mm. free alcohol mm. um, and just by way of them being the most popular events that most people are at mm. it encourages a lot of people to go as well mm. um, but like you said I th- even our law society um, which is very big on its alcohol budget they the treasurer make sure that's all sorted <laughs> before the year even starts um, even our law society uh, made an effort in our in my second year mm. to uh, bring in a social secretary that actually decided to uh, have a non-alcoholic freshers mm. um, fair bundle ticket or mm. freshers uh, event bundle ticket. Mm. So normally, like most societies do, or a lot of big societies do, they have freshers activities, um, particularly the, the departmental ones. Mm. Freshers activities in a bundle package will be £100, £150, mm. and you get, I don't know, 10 or 13, 14 mm. events you can go to. Um, and they made one specifically that involved all of the events that, where alcohol would not be served. Mm. Um and they sold that separately. Um, so I think that was a, a real step in the right direction mm. in terms of just widening participation mm. um, and being more inclusive. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, like you said, the social events, I, I mean, things that I've actually attended. Um, or examples of that students at university that don't drink, for example, or even yeah. actually happen to be Muslim, uh, what kind of events can they go to? So there's a lot of stuff. Um, uh, so, for example, there'll be various dinners, um, mm. which obviously some people may order alcohol. Mm. That's up, it's up, up to you mm-hmm. whether you want to do that mm. or not. Obviously, mm. um, as Muslims, we won't. Mm. Um, but even just outside of that, there are, um, for example, just off the top of my head, there's a movie night that is actually held mm. um, at UCL. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's even within accommodations. Obviously, mm-hmm. within these uh, accommodations, movie theatres, etc., mm-hmm. you cannot drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- these are sorts of events there's many theatre shows and stuff like that as well mm. within UCL alcohol not permitted in the theatre itself 
um I think accommodation as well. Even yeah. in, I, I don't know about your accommodation, but we both lived out, uh, yeah. out of uni. Um, we have you know a sports room, a social room. We have a table tennis yeah, or, yeah. or pool or cinema room, for example, like he's mentioned. I think even those kind of things are very very important. Yeah. And going to the gym, even I think that's a big thing. Go to the gym I'm looking to have a gym in my accommodation, and apart from your physical health, it's a social activity. When I go down with my flatmates, um, you know, it's it's a period of bonding. We talk about things. We talk about having our lives right now, and, yeah. and so on and so forth. So I think again, it really. Um, it really kind of increases that bond, that social bond that we're looking for, really. Definitely. And on that as well, um, the Hanimah Student Association hold a series of academic talks as well. So we talk, talked about non non curricular academic uh, non curricular activities at social events, but we also have academic events. For example, uh, on the on next Tuesday we're having a talk at St George University London, which is open to any uh, AMSA student in London. In fact, any non AMSA student as well um, on scientific miracles of the Holy Quran and you know their relevance to the the secular, the secular world, the scientific world. And then we have a couple more events at LSE in March, talking about early Pakistan history. Again, the history of Pakistan is very important. You know, there might be many listeners here that are Pakistani or, or have an interest in the history of Pakistan and politics, and so they might want to, you know, come down to that event on the seventh of March and the twenty sixth of March. Um, keep an eye out. Follow us on Twitter. Um, follow the Ahmadi Muslim Student Association on LinkedIn, um, and certainly have a have a think about that. But we're coming to the end of the show now. Um, please join us again next time for more insight. Um, and I would like to mention again the views and opinions expressed here are our opinions from the panellists and, and the guests and the presenters and myself but again I would like to say thank you to our guest speakers and thank you to Tahir for joining us how you found it uh, any well, last words it was great um, I just wanted to thank you as well for being such a great host and um, inviting me on today and Zakula and until next time Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh